As we just read, the psalmist loves God's law. If you're not quite sure about that, you can go back and reread what we just read. Psalm 119, 33-40. Or you could go and read the whole psalm. 119 is just full of that kind of language. I love your law. I delight in your commandments. Your rules are good. Teach me your precepts. I love your precepts. This is the kind of language that fills Psalm 119. And the big idea of today's message is that we should likewise love God's law. We should make friends with God's law rather than seeing God's law as an enemy. We're looking at this subject today because I'm going to begin... I'm going to be beginning a series on the Ten Commandments on July 15th, which is after we get back from Antigua and after Chris Powell preaches for us on July 8th. So this week and next week, I'm kind of doing two introductory preliminary messages to that series. And then on July 1st, a number of us will be in Antigua for the Caribbean Baptist Heritage Conference, and Sabio and Tevin will be preaching in our absence. And then July 8th, Pastor Chris Powell from Toronto will be preaching to us. But then beginning July 15th, we're going to be beginning a series on the Ten Commandments, spending one week on each of the commandments for ten weeks. And so we're just doing two preliminary messages this week and next week, setting us up for that study of God's law. If we view the law as an enemy then we won't be looking forward to that series. We'll be thinking of it as a drudgery, an onerous burden, oh, two months, two and a half months studying God's law. If, however, we view the law as the psalmist does in 119, Psalm 119, and as we will see throughout the course of our sermon today, the way that Paul does also in Romans chapter 7, then we can look forward to a series on the Ten Commandments with great anticipation, expecting God to bless us through it and make us more Christ-like over the next couple of months as we give due heed to His law. So again, the big idea of today's message is that we should make friends with God's law rather than seeing it as an enemy. And we're going to approach this subject a little differently than we usually do. Normally we just work our way through a book of the Bible consecutively. And so we basically focus in on a section of the biblical text each week, one section, and deal with that section. But today what we're going to try to do is draw on a number of different passages from various sections of Scripture, rather than focusing in on one section in particularly. So let's begin with two passages in Luke that teach us what God's law is. After all, it's going to be hard for us to make friends with God's law if we're not exactly sure what God's law is, what we mean when we say God's law. So turn with me first to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. Luke 10, 25 through 28. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying... Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. There is, of course, a context to this statement. And we could say much more about this text if we were studying Luke 10 in particular. But for our purposes today, I just want you to see Jesus' logic. And here is Jesus' logic in this section. If one perfectly and perpetually loved God with heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loved his neighbor as himself, then he would be without sin. That's Jesus' logic here in this passage. If a person who did that was not without sin, then it would be unjust for God to grant him eternal life. But Jesus teaches us in this passage that if a person, hypothetically, did that perfectly and perpetually, loved God with heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loved their neighbor as their self, then they would have eternal life. Jesus says, do this and you will live. Luke 10, 28. So Jesus is teaching that if one perfectly and perpetually loved God with heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loved his neighbor as himself, then he would be without sin. Which means that God's law is love. God's law, what God expects of us, the law that He expects us to obey, the duties that He places on us as humans, can be summed up as simply love. Love God, love the people around you. The law of God is love. Christians are to love. We can't lose the forest for the trees. There are lots of imperatives scattered throughout the Scripture that we are to obey. But all of those things can be summed up as simply love. Christians are to love. We need to keep that big picture in mind. God made us simply to love Him and love others. That's literally all we need to do. That is the sum and substance of God's law. That is literally all that God expects of us. That is literally the sum of the duty that God has laid upon us. is to love Him and love other people. Jesus teaches us very clearly in Luke 10 that the law of God is love. But what does love look like? After all, in our world today, we have, for example, people telling us that it is unloving for us to challenge someone else's opinion or someone else's lifestyle. And such people would argue that that's, it's not loving to speak up. It would be more loving to just be nice and quiet. People obviously have different ideas of what love is, what love looks like. And so we can say it's all well and good to say, and it's true to say that literally all Christians need to do is love God and love others. But we're still left with the question, what does love look like? Turn to Luke 18, verses 18 through 20. In Luke 18, we read actually a very similar passage to the one we just read. 
In Luke 18, a ruler asks Jesus, verse 18, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. Again, there's context to this statement and much more that we could say about this text if we were studying Luke 18 in particular. But again, as it was with Luke chapter 10, so it is with Luke 18. What I want you to focus on now, what, I, what we need to focus on now in order to understand our broader subject is Jesus' logic. Just as Jesus taught in Luke 10 that if one loves perfectly and perpetually God and neighbor, then he is without sin. Luke teaches us here, in, or Jesus teaches us here, rather, in Luke 18, that if one keeps the Ten Commandments perfectly and perpetually, he's without sin. Clearly, Jesus is referencing the Ten Commandments. He quotes five of them as a subset of a list that he assumes the man he's speaking with will be familiar with. He says, you know, you know the commandments. You know them. Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not commit adultery, honor your father. You know, you know the commandments. Clearly, he's referencing the Ten Commandments here in this section. And he's referencing the Ten Commandments in answer to the man's question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is the same question that was posed to Jesus in Luke 10 and verse 25. And in Luke 10, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, and you will have eternal life. And in Luke 18, He says, Obey the Ten Commandments, and you will have eternal life. The logic here is exactly the same in Luke 18 as it was in Luke chapter 10. He's implying to the man that if a person kept the Ten Commandments perfectly and perpetually, they would be without sin. And therefore, they would have eternal life because God would not be just to punish them for sin that they don't have. This is the logic here in Luke 18. It's the exact same logic, actually, as Luke chapter 10. These are basically the same conversations, but the details change. Jesus answers with love in Luke 10, and He answers with the Ten Commandments in Luke 18. But the logic is the same. If you do these things, you will live. We see then that the law of God is love. And the law of God is the Ten Commandments. These are simply two different ways of expressing the same substance. Which is why Paul can say in Romans 13 and verse 10, love is the fulfilling of the law. You'll notice in your program, there's an excerpt from the 1689 Confession. Chapter 19 is reprinted in full. Sorry, I had to put it in a little bit smaller print than usual to fit it all in. 
But chapter 19 on the law of God, well, actually, no, it's not even in full because I left out paragraphs 3 and 4. Most of it is there. But chapter 2, or pardon me, chapter 19, paragraph 2, you'll notice, states that the first four of the Ten Commandments relate to our duty toward God, and the last six relate to our duty toward mankind. This is from a confession of faith written in the year 1677. It overlaps with the Westminster Confession of Faith used by Presbyterians all over the world. It relates in in substance with the Belgic Confession. Uh, it, It relates in substance with all of the Reformed Confessions. This is traditionally the way that theologians have understood the relationship between the law and love. They're harmonious. Even more than that, actually, they're coterminous. Love is, what love looks like, is obedience to God's law. Both in relationship to God and in relationship to others. And to truly obey God's law is to love. If you think you can obey God's law without loving, you're mistaken. If you think you can love without obeying God's law, you're mistaken. The Bible speaks of these two things as actually being coterminous. Again, as Paul says in Romans 13.10, love is the fulfilling of the law. So the law of God is love, and the law of God is the Ten Commandments. Now if you were paying close attention as I read the passages above and discussed them, a question may have arisen in your mind. Is John teaching us salvation by works this morning? Or, to go to the root of the matter, is Jesus teaching salvation by works in Luke chapter 10 and in Luke chapter 18? The answer is actually both yes and no. Hypothetically, The answer is yes. Because as Jesus taught in Luke 10 and in Luke 18, if somebody loved perfectly, if somebody kept the Ten Commandments perfectly, they would have eternal life. That's the clear teaching of Jesus in Luke chapter 10 and Luke chapter 18. And this goes all the way back to the garden. When God placed Adam under His law and the terms of His relationship with Adam... Where if you obey, you're not going to die. And if you disobey, you are going to die. It's what theologians call the covenant of works. If Adam had never sinned in the garden, there would be no death in the world. There would be no hell, save maybe for the devil and his angels. And so, hypothetically, in the garden, keeping God's law was Adam's pathway to life. And yet what we see was that Adam sinned. What is sin? The Catechism tells us, sin is any transgression against or lack of conformity unto God's law. What did Adam do? He transgressed God's law. He ate from the tree that he had been forbidden to eat from. And so sin entered the world, and Romans 5 tells us, death through sin. And so what we see now is that though hypothetically there never would be any death, there wouldn't be punishment for sin if there was no sin, 
And there wouldn't be, therefore, death if there was no sin. Therefore, there would have been life if there was no sin. And the absence of sin would have been the keeping of God's law. You understand what I'm saying? Hypothetically, God's law for Adam in the covenant of works was a pathway to life. But ever since Adam's sin in the garden, mankind has been born guilty and corrupt. Which means that our natures are inclined away from God's law from birth. And so we cannot, and therefore we do not, keep God's law. Therefore, what we find is that though there is, what we could say, a hypothetical pathway to eternal life through the law, that pathway is closed to us ever since Adam's fall into sin. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7 and verse 10. Paul is speaking about God's law. He quotes from the Ten Commandments in verse 7 of Romans chapter 7, You shall not covet. And then he says in verse 10, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. We see in Romans chapter 10 and verse 5 that Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. This is what Paul means in Romans 7 where he talks about the commandment promising life. If you do them, you shall live. If you don't break God's commandments ever, you have no sin. Therefore, you won't be punished for your sin, etc., etc. But what we see Paul saying in Romans chapter 7 and verse 10 is that the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And again, if we were focusing our study in on Romans 7, there's a lot more that we could explain from that chapter. But the point that I want to emphasize is this. The defect is in the sinner and not in the law. As Paul says in Romans 7 and verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. God gave holy and righteous and good commandments. And if people perfectly and perpetually kept those holy and righteous and good commandments, loving God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving their neighbor as themselves, there would be no sin. Therefore, there would be no death. Therefore, there would be eternal life. And so the defect, what makes the law a bringer of death to someone, is their breach of it. The defect is in the sinner and not in the law itself. However, the inability of sinners to keep God's law is universal. There is nobody who can keep God's law the way that we ought. Only one person has ever done that. And he has gone to the cross, has come out of the grave, 
has ascended to the Father's right hand and we're waiting for Him to return. Everybody else cannot keep God's law. As we read in the Scriptures, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so what this means, what this means is that to those who are outside of Christ Jesus, to all of us, at the time that we were outside of Christ Jesus. The law was an agent of condemnation to us. That's why in 2 Corinthians 3, it's called the ministry of death. The ministry of death. Because when we were outside of Christ Jesus, before His perfect life of law-keeping and love had been credited to us. The law simply told us what we needed to be, but showed us as a mirror what we are not and could never be. And so the law was to us, outside of Christ, a ministry of death. And in fact, it's still a ministry of death to all who are outside Christ. Because telling people Telling people that if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, you will be without sin. And God will accept you based on your righteousness. All that does is condemn somebody who is outside of Christ. For even by the time that you have got that message to their ears, they have already failed to love. And even if from that moment they resolve with all their might and with all their willpower to love God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind and love their neighbor as their self. Without hearts that have been renewed by the grace of God, without the power of the Holy Spirit living within them, they cannot love God as they ought. And so all the law does to those outside of Christ, is condemned. This is why Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 3, the ministry of death. So what is to be done then? God's express purpose is to relax, is, is pardon me, not to relax, to reconcile. God's express purpose is to reconcile sinners to Himself. How will He do it? How can He do it? Will God relax His holy standards in order to receive sinners to Himself? Of course not. That would make God less than holy. If God became less than holy, God would become less than God. God has devised a way to require of mankind what He always has required. Not relaxing His law in the slightest and yet pardoning sinners. Expecting perfect and perpetual obedience to His command to love Him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. To love our neighbors as ourselves. To expect perfect and perpetual obedience to the Ten Commandments. God has devised a way to require that perfect and perpetual obedience. 
in order that sinners might be saved and yet actually save sinners. Romans 5, 12 to 21. Again, we just, we have to touch on these passages somewhat superficially because we're looking at so many today. But Romans 5, 12 to 21 talks about two men. One man who sinned and through him death entered the world because he acted as a representative for all men. Another man who came lived righteously and his righteousness led to life. And so what we see is this principle of the one and the many. Verse 19 of Romans chapter 5. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We see in this passage, you can read it and study it on your own time. What we see in this passage is is teaching about representation. There is one man who represents many. And in his representation, he sins. And so all whom he represents become guilty and corrupt and suffer the punishment due to sin. There is another man who acts as a representative. And he obeys. And his obedience becomes the righteousness and achieves the reward of all whom he represents. This first man was Adam. And this second man was Christ Jesus. And so what we see is that there is good news for sinners who can't keep God's law and earn life ourselves. There is good news for those who cannot love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind and our neighbor as ourselves. Good news for those of us, namely all of us, who can't keep the Ten Commandments perfectly and perpetually as we ought. Someone has acted as our representative on our behalf, has offered a representative obedience for us. And the Scriptures tell us that by faith in Him, by faith in Christ Jesus, His obedience is credited to us as if we had obeyed. The same way that Adam's disobedience was credited to all whom he represents as if they had disobeyed. This is what Romans 5, 12 to 21 teaches us. So when we put our faith in Christ Jesus, we receive His righteousness, His loving of God and neighbor as if it was our loving of God and neighbor. His keeping of the Ten Commandments as if it was our keeping of the Ten Commandments. And so God views us as righteous. But what then of all the sins we had committed and still commit? They deserve punishment. Christ Jesus acts not only as our representative, achieving for us the righteousness that we could never achieve for ourselves, but Christ acts as our representative in bearing the punishment that we deserve for our sin. Christ Jesus on the cross bears the wrath of God, the punishment, the penalty that we deserve for the breach of God's law. If the law said, do this and live, conversely, the law said, don't do this and die. Christ did what the law demanded 
not only in the positive fulfillment of righteousness, but in the penalty-bearing demands of the law for us as a representative. And so the, the good news isn't that we should try to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind and love our neighbor as ourselves. And if we do it good enough, we'll have eternal life. The good news is not that we know God's law, the Ten Commandments, and if we keep them, then we will be accepted in God's sight on the basis of our obedience. No. Thinking of the law in that regard, all it is, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, is a ministry of death. When we think about the law in terms of the way it functions in the covenant of works, it's a ministry of death. We're no longer under it in that sense as Christ has kept the law for us. So what then if Christ has kept the law for us? Having been reconciled to God by faith in Christ, having Christ's righteousness imputed to us, what then is the role of the law in the new covenant? What is the role of the law in the life of a believer in Christ Jesus who already has perfect righteousness in and through Christ Jesus? Do you realize that believers in Christ Jesus stand before God clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness? And so from a legal perspective, God views me and you, brothers and sisters, as being as holy as Jesus. Wow. What then is the role of the law in the life of a believer? Certainly it's not earning or meriting. As I've already said, we can't do it. Christ has already done it for us, in fact, so earning or meriting would be redundant. God has dealt with us by grace through the righteousness of Christ. Already, what then? Shall we abandon the law? And as Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, just go on sinning? Cast the law aside because Christ has already fulfilled it for us. We're going to heaven. So there's no real point. By no means, as as Paul answers that in Romans chapter 6 and verse 2. By no means. God intends for us to keep the law in the new covenant. Not in any earning or meriting kind of way. Christ has already done that for us. But in order to simply be what He has created us to be, image bearers. That we would live the way that Adam was intended to live. Remember, Adam was intended to keep the law. That was God's purpose for humanity from the beginning. That we would be law-keeping Therefore, righteous image bearers of God who tell the truth to the watching world about who God is and what He's like. Also to enjoy communion with God. I don't mean communion like the communion table, but fellowship with God. The great Puritan theologian John Owen distinguished between union with Christ and communion with Christ. Our union with Christ never changes. It doesn't fluctuate. We put our faith in Christ Jesus. 
we're bound to Him forever. Even as we just sang, I am His forever. Our relationship to God never changes in that respect. We're reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. And that will never change. What shall separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus? The end of Romans 8. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Our union with Christ does not change. I am His and He is mine. But our communion, our enjoyment of our relationship with God, even God's pleasure in us can ebb and flow, can wax and wane, can rise and decline. Our communion with God, our enjoyment of Him, His enjoyment of us, as it were, can fluctuate, can change, can vary. Think of it like the way you might think of a father's relationship with his son. A good father. A good father always loves his son. And yet a father and son's relationship can be strained by the sin of the son. By the actions of a son which are displeasing to the father. Conflict between. It's something like that. Part of sanctification is learning how to enjoy God more and more. To seek deeper and deeper fellowship with God. To perceive Him as our highest good, which He actually is. And to enter into deeper and deeper fellowship with Him. And part of sanctification is desiring to glorify God. To make Him seem as great as He actually is. To tell the truth about who He is. Part of sanctification is also expressing our love for the God who has created us and redeemed us. For all of these reasons and more, never to earn our salvation or to merit our salvation, but for all of the motivations I just gave you and more, the New Testament teaches us that it is still our duty to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The New Testament teaches us, Romans, uh, pardon me, Luke 18, Romans 13, for example, that we still have a duty to obey the Ten Commandments. It doesn't function the same way in the life of a New Covenant believer the way it functioned for Adam in the covenant of works, whereby his law-keeping would be life and his law-breaking would be death. It doesn't function the way in the life of a believer the way it does in the life of an unbeliever where it's an agent of condemnation for them. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ has already answered the demands of the law for us. Therefore, it it can bring no condemnation to us. The law no longer serves as an agent of condemnation for us. But it does serve continually for us as a rule of life, as a guide for us. Jeremiah 31 and verse 33 forms part of a prophecy about the new covenant. In case you're wondering whether I've done my exegesis right here or not, Jeremiah 31, 31 expressly says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is quoted in Hebrews 8 as applying to even Gentile believers in Christ Jesus. And so it's not exclusively with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, though it is with them. This is a prophecy about the new covenant. And Jeremiah 31 and 33 says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and will write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now remember, the defect that makes the law a ministry of death is not in the law, but in the sinner. In other words, the problem is not the commandment that is holy and righteous and good, as Paul says in Romans 7.12. The problem is in me, who the Bible says, whose heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. The problem is in me, who like a sheep has gone astray. The problem is in me and in you. Outside of, I'm speaking about the unregenerate person outside of Christ Jesus. The problem is in the sinner. And so what, G, what God is prophesying through Jeremiah is that in the new covenant, God will not merely leave the law as external to people, holy and righteous and good, and yet their hearts will remain forever inclined away from God's commandments. What God will do is write His law on their hearts. In other words, He's changing our hearts to embrace God's commandments, to be shaped like God's commandments. That we would be able to look at someone's heart and see the commandments of God, as it were, as we look at their hearts. Ezekiel 36 and verse 26. Again, this is a prophecy about the coming new covenant. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. There is a renewal, a change that happens where the defect that was in our hearts, which made us inclined away from obedience to God's law, which made us not love God and love neighbor naturally, but which made us fail to love God and neighbor naturally. That defect of our hearts, which made us not keep the Ten Commandments naturally, but break the Ten Commandments naturally, that defect will be removed as God gives new hearts, as God rewrites His law upon our hearts. And Ezekiel 36 and verse 27, the verse right after says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God will change the hearts of His new covenant people and give the Holy Spirit to His new covenant people in order that they would be able to keep His law. And so what you see is that the promise of the new covenant is not simply that we will be pardoned for our breach of God's law. It's not simply that we will be forgiven for breaking God's law. 
It's not simply that we who have rebelled against God and are, have become His enemies because of our sin will be reconciled to God. Those are real promises of the New Covenant. But promises of the New Covenant include renewal of our nature. What the New Testament calls being born again. Regeneration. There's not just a legal change that happens whereby we are reconciled to God. There's a qualitative change that happens whereby we are made new. And when that happens, the law, the commandment that is holy and righteous and good, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7 and 12, becomes to us no longer a ministry of death because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it becomes to us a delight, which is the way that the psalmist talked about it, which is the way that Paul also talks about it in that same chapter, Romans chapter 7. Paul says in Romans chapter 7 and verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. So what we find is when we're freed from the law's condemnation, we're no longer liable to its penalty because Christ has answered its penalty on our behalf. We're no longer subject to its legal demands of righteousness to earn salvation because Christ has answered its legal demands on our behalf. The law becomes to us a help and an aid to us in our Christian life in terms of glorifying God, in terms of expressing our love for Christ Jesus, our Savior. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. In terms of helping us enjoy fellowship with the God of our salvation. The law becomes to us an aid and a help. It becomes to us, many have compared it to a train tracks, a set of train tracks along which we move in the Christian life. Just as a train track provides no power, no locomotion, but it provides the route along which the train travels, so the law functions in the life of a Christian. Run, John, run, the law demands. The old Puritan John Bunyan wrote, Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. In other words, do this or live. Do this and live. But there's no power given in that statement. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. So having been reconciled to God by faith in Christ Jesus, His law-keeping imputed to us and counted as our own, His death bearing the penalty that the law demanded for our breach of it, the law no longer serves as a ministry of death to us, as an agent of condemnation to us. Rather, it's a help and an aid and a guide to us in living lives, new covenant lives that are pleasing to God. Having been given new hearts and having been given the Holy Spirit to help us live obedient lives, to walk in God's statutes as the passages we just read shows us. 
the law of God is the path along which we move, like train tracks. So as I said at the beginning, we need to make friends with God's law and no longer regard it as an enemy. Now one might object, ah, but we are, no, we are not under law, we are under grace. That's a verse in Romans, it's in the Bible, so it's a fair objection. But that verse speaks to the mode of justification, not to duty. The context of that is that we're no longer under the law as a mode of justification, as a means of being reconciled to God, as we were when we were outside of Christ. We were under the law as a mode of justification when we were outside of Christ, and we were failing miserably and on our way to hell. Now we are no longer under the law, but under grace. The duty remains. Paul Washer tells a story of a time he was preaching on the Ten Commandments, and somebody actually stood up and interrupted the meeting and said, enough of this legalism. We're not under the law, but we're under grace. And Paul Washer you know, explained to him that he's not saying that we need to earn our salvation by the law and so on and so forth, trying to clear up any misconception that the man might have. And he explained that the duty remains. And the man said, no, no, we're free from that burden. And Paul Washer said to him, well, which of the Ten Commandments do you find so burdensome? Like you, you, you want to go and worship idols and you just find that the law burdens you so badly? You want to make God in your own image? You want to go murder? You want to go steal? Which of these commands do you find so burdensome? The duty remains. We're not under the law as a mode of justification, but the duty remains. The first four of the Ten Commandments speak about our love to God. The last six speak about our love for neighbors. Theologians call those the two tables of the law. The first table being the first four, our duty toward God, and the last six being the second table, our duty toward man. And we, as we see in 1 John, the Apostle tells us His commands are not burdensome. To those who have been justified by grace through faith, we love, we come to love God's law and we want to walk in the path of His commandments. Second objection. Again, from the book of Romans. Now we are released from the law. I'm quoting. Now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Again, if this means what persons who might quote that an objection think it means, then it's a valid objection. And it's a Bible verse, so we've got to deal with it. Again, there's that, that covenantal context. right? We're, we are released from the law in terms of its claims upon us for perfect righteousness in terms of its claim upon us to die and suffer the penalty that we deserve for its breach. We are released from the law's claims on us because Christ has answered them on our behalf. That's what it means when it says we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. When Christ died, we died. And when we died, all of the demands of the law were answered. And so we are released from the law. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That section of the verse speaks to motivations and empowerment. And again, not to duties. 
that written code didn't empower the Israelites to keep it, did it? Those tablets of stone that came down from the mountain sure didn't empower Old Covenant Israel to keep them, did they? We see that story playing out over and over and over again. Even though the Israelites had God's law contained on those tablets of stone, they broke over and over and over. And so that which promised life, as Paul says in Romans 7.10, proved to be death to me. The command is holy and righteous and good. The defect is not in the law, but in the sinner. And so serving in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code doesn't speak to a change in duties, but rather it speaks to a change in motivation and empowerment. That we are no longer motivated to keep the law as a covenant in order that we might attain life by it, because we have life through Christ. We're no longer motivated to keep the law out of the fear of going to hell because Christ has answered the penalty of the law on our behalf. And so there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we no longer have those legal motivations to keep the law anymore. And we're not left to our own devices to keep the law as unbelieving Old Covenant Israelites were. Unbelieving Old Covenant Israelites didn't have the Holy Spirit within them helping them. But as we saw from Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 27, God has put His Spirit in New Covenant believers to cause us to walk in His statutes. And so we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. My friends, we do need to make friends with God's law, no longer regarded as our enemy. It's a great help to us. Paul wrote who wrote all these things. Actually, both of those objections I just quoted were from Paul's pen. Paul wrote both of those things and also wrote, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And I delight in the law of God in my inner being. As we read earlier, the psalmist said similar things. In Romans, or pardon me, in in Psalm 119. We should learn, like the psalmist and like Paul himself, to delight in God's law. As those who have been reconciled to God through Christ, who has answered all of the law's legal demands on our behalf, and no longer functions legally in our lives as an instrument of justification or condemnation, but it continues to serve for us as a guide for our lives. It's a gift of God that we might glorify Him, that we might express our love for Christ Jesus, and that we might enjoy deeper and deeper fellowship with the God of our salvation as the years go by. As the psalmist said then in Psalm 119 and verse 32, having made friends with the law, let us, as the psalmist said, run in the path of His commandments.